man, sluts is all alike. Just love teasing a man. You see that? She heard that, but she wouldn't turn around. Gotta remember one thing, sluts is cagey. She ain't never gonna lose that slut look, no matter how hard she tries. Because there's always gonna be a little too much rouge on the cheeks, and a little too much mascara in the eyes. There's always gonna be a little too much of everything. Now, why do you think she wears so much lipstick? It's because she knows that by the end of the night, she's gonna be kissing so many men, and she's gonna need that much, so it'll last. Man, I'm gonna tell you something. You put a diamond on a slut and it'll turn to rhinestone. She's got cash registers in her eyes that keep lighting up. Sale, sale! Every man that she ever slept with has left his mark on her face. Now you look at that slash on her face. How do you think that got there? Well, her new lover come home, found her in bed with another man, and took his fine leather belt to her face, but it didn't work. Because you can't never beat the slut out of a slut. It's like a disease, man. There ain't no cure for it, except men, and lots of them. The next one you give the girl a break. It ain't a fault the way she is. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> man, if you believe that, you believe anything. Uh, I'm going to tell you something. There's only two ways for a woman in this life. Either an honest wife or a low-lying slut. That bitch, I could make her right here and now, and she'd let me. You know why? Because she can't say no. Ain't that the truth, sweetheart? That'll get you hot, won't it? I mean, won't that make you feel all hot inside? Radio Drone. Saturday night, Josh Hadley. Saturday night, Cecil T. And I ain't got nobody. That's true. Saturday <laughs> night, Peter G. Tootie fucking fruity. <laughs> okay, for that, Adam and Eve. Uh, if you if you want some. Uh some fruity for your tootie, uh, you can go to adamandeve.com, and if you use the promo code DROME, uh, you can get yourself some uh, some cool stuff, some uh, some mystery gifts, a uh, gift for him, a gift for her, six free DVDs. That's if you use the promo code DROME, and it only works for American customers. So if you are outside of the U.S. of A., it does not apply to you. So, yeah, go go down to Adam and Eve. Do some stuff. Get yourself some uh, some butt toys. Tonight we're going to talk about, uh, remember a few weeks ago we did the That Guy episode, and I, I brought up Sid Haig. Well, after that, I interviewed Sid Haig, which you guys are going to hear later. Not only is, is he one of the nicest people I think I have ever met in my entire life, 
He's a fascinating individual with a fascinating career. What do you think of when you think of Sid Haig? I know he's he's got a wide variety of uh, movies that he's done. He's done movies. He's done television. Uh, but I, I, I know you're probably going to disagree with me. I can't not think of him <laughs> as Captain Spaulding because he's so good in the role. And not that he's bad in other stuff, but I don't know. That just, for me, that kind of became like the pivotal character. I think I know what you mean. In House of a Thousand Corpses, his character is so far above all the other characters in terms of acting. Yeah. He's almost in a different mm-hmm. film. I mean, he's he's because he stood out like there there are times where you watch a movie and like when I saw Pitch Black for the first time and Vin Diesel comes on and you're like, you immediately want to know more about this person. And <laughs> not that the other people are doing that bad, but it's just that he's so much better than everyone else. So that was the thing mm-hmm. with with Sid Haig and House of a Thousand Corpses and then into uh, Devil's Rejects. He still was the the guy who was head and shoulders above everybody else. And so yeah. that kind of made him that kind of made that that pivotal character for me that made him stand out. For me, Sid Haig is the guy that I, I always liked as an actor. Love him in uh, Galaxy of Terror, great Roger Corman flick. And that's why I'm so happy about the House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects movies. Just to to see someone like him who full well deserves to be more recognized playing such a awesome uh just such a, a great iconic I, I, to me the captain spaulding character is absolutely an iconic figure when it comes to horror and it, it just makes me happy that we we got to see him and and bill mosley on the big screen just two dudes that that I, I loved so much, you know, growing up watching and, and you know, random uh, 80s uh, horror and, and genre flicks. So so to me, he, he's a guy with a, a hell of a lot of talent who for the longest time was not recognized for it by the majority. And I think with the role of, of Captain Spaulding, uh, I, I full well agree with Cecil that he is very well known for that. A lot of people who had no idea who he was were, were introduced to him through the Captain Spaulding character. So... You know, I love the the Devil's Rejects and, and House of a Thousand Corpses. I love him and everything else I've seen him in. But I've really got to you know pay thanks to uh, uh, to Rob Zombie for for bringing out some of those you know lesser known genre film and, and TV actors and and putting them on the big screen. I think that's that's just fucking awesome. And then see, to me, I knew Sid Haig from his TV work. I remember seeing him as a regular heavy on police story and mission impossible and the a team and stuff like that. And then he would also pop up on werewolf and he was like, he'd be on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And then he was Dragos on Jason of star command. So I knew Sid Haig more from his TV stuff, but that's cause I'm older than you guys. As you'll hear him say in the interview, there's a, there's a lot more people like you two. He basically has people that think Rob zombie discovered him and started <laughs> his career at house of a thousand corpses not, you know, the 40 years prior to that that he was working in television. Here's here's the interview I did with Sid Haig. Peter and Cecil were supposed to be there, but Peter had to work and Cecil was busy child rearing, so it's just me talking to Sid Haig and then we'll be back. You've been on Batman, you've been on Star Trek, you've been on westerns, on sci-fi shows, you've been on big budget shows, low budget shows. Do you have a particular favorite? I, I don't mean like a specific show, but do you like doing action movie TV or low budget television or what do you like doing the most as an actor? 
I, you know, I, I go for the story. I go for the script. Okay, and if it's something that I can connect with and feel good about, the genre really doesn't make any difference to me. I mean, I'll do a chick flick if it's a good script. Is that how you pick your movies as well, that, that it's based on the script? When I can, the reality of life is that the bill's got to be paid. Sometimes you just do something, you know, just because uh, you have bills to pay, like everybody else. I, you know, I've, I've been fortunate in being able to do some film work and some, even some television work that uh, I feel really good about. I, I'm older than my co-hosts, and I showed them the abduction of Laura Hager's clip from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, the you can't beat the slut out of a slut speech. They were just astonished at how amazing you delivered that speech and the fact that that aired on 70s television. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, that was, uh, that was a show that was like way ahead of its time. Norman Lear was the executive producer, creator of the show. That worked out to be something that was just a treasure to do, to go to work every day, and probably one of the biggest compliments that I was ever given because I did that episode that you're talking about. And a couple of weeks later, they called and asked if I would like to do another one. And I said, yeah, sure, I had a lot of fun. And 126 episodes later, they killed me. Yeah, you mentioned that on the Jason of Star Command DVD. Was yeah. was it weird working on a soap opera for somebody with your history of, you know, basically killing people on TV and in movies up to that point? Uh, it wasn't weird. It was just, it was fun to be able to do something different. You know, I, it's, you always want to kind of stretch the envelope and do, do something that is different from all the stuff that you've been typecast in. Well, speaking of that, probably your other role that people are shocked that, you know, Sid Haig from the Rob Zombie movies and all that is in was Jason of Star Command, which I didn't see first run, but I grew up watching on Saturday mornings in syndication. I think it's amazing to see you as Dragos. Things have a funny way of working out. I was at Rob Zombie's wedding, and at the reception, uh, I was talking to his brother, and he said, this is so weird. And I said, what, the wedding? He said, no, standing here talking to you. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, when Rob and I were kids, we used to get up every Saturday morning and work and watch Jason of Star Command. And you scared the crap out of us every Saturday. Rob saw me popping ship in the kind of films that he liked to watch. And he said, and this is actually a quote from him when he gave me the uh, Igor Award at Universal Studios. He said, if I ever get to direct a film, I want that guy in it. And that goes back to Jason of Star Command. Do you, ha do you have people that recognize you more from the Jason of Star Command, Mary Hartman's, or being on the A-Team or Star Trek? Or it, do you have more of an audience nowadays with uh, the Rob Zombie movies and, you know, Jackie Brown and whatnot? It's, it's more the recent stuff. People, people, people think I started my career with House of a Thousand Corpses. So, yeah, it's just the way it goes. Well, speaking of starting your career, at the beginning of your career, I don't mean the very beginning, but I mean you, throughout your career, you've worked with some huge name directors. I mean, you've worked with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and then you've also worked with Roger Corman and whatnot. Which, what, what of the two worlds is the most fun? I know you said you go for the script, but I mean, just on an acting level, is it more fun being on Amazing Stories 
or on werewolves. Wow, it's it's amazing that you you brought up those two shows. Werewolf was a uh, a situation where Tommy Sands was supposed to direct that episode, and he got the flu, and so the producers, one of which I had a, a strong association with, uh, John Ashley, just called the guy who was directing the present episode and said, you're going to have to stay and, and do this next episode. And he says, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't even finished my episode yet. You know? He said, well, tough. That's just, you're just going to have to do it. He said, so, okay, send me the script. And so they did. And he read the thing and he said, okay, this is what I want. I don't want you to send me anybody that is not theatrically trained. Stage actors is all I want. So that's how I got the job, because I was one of those guys. He directed the, the whole, basically the, uh, almost the entire episode took place in a boxcar. So he used the parameters of the boxcar like a stage, like and the, the, the ends, the two ends, the right and left end of, of the boxcar were like the proscenium of a stage. And so that's the way he did it. He staged it. And the cameras were moving more than the actors. They were coming in for two shots and singles and this, that, and the other thing. We just kept going. And he finished the show a day early. It was a, it was a good episode. It was, it was really, uh, I think, one of their higher-rated episodes. So that's how that thing worked out. I also, <laughs> I don't know why I forgot, I also worked with uh, Hitchcock. And uh, that was a, a funny situation because I got called in to do the, the interview for uh, Topaz. The secretary answered her little remote thing, whatever, and and said, uh, Mr. Hitchcock, we'll see you now. And I went and the bar and I heard him come in from the inside. And I walked in and he was over on the side getting something out of a file cabinet or whatever. And so he was walking back across to his desk and uh, his wife had directed, uh, uh, decorated his office for him, and there was like Irish lace uh, uh, curtains on the window. That as he walked across, you got the famous profile, and I started to laugh. And he looked at me, and I just kind of motioned towards you know where he was, and he realized what I was seeing, and he started to chuckle. And he said, sit down, my boy, and so we sat and we talked for a few minutes, and I got the job. So, you know, things things just, if if you kind of stay on your toes and uh, go with the role, things just kind of happen and work out for you. Well, and then um, I, can't remember if it was, I can't remember if it was the producers of Jason of Star Command, they related a, a story where they were behind on some of their creditors and then you came out in full Dragos makeup and they claimed you were the head of the company and it chased off the bill collector. Is that a true story? That is a true story. It wasn't a bill collector. He was a guy that was trying to sell something, okay? And he just kept showing up and, and saying, well, the, the owner of the company isn't here, and, you know, the secretary's trying to protect the, everybody. And he just kept coming back. And, and uh, so one day he came back just as I was walking down the hall, and I said, you know, uh, is the owner of the company? And the secretary said, yeah, that's him right there, and pointed at me. He turned around, he took one look and walked out the door and never came back. You, you've been on so many TV shows. I actually think you probably have done more TV than you have movies, but yet you're more well-known for your movies. Do you think people should know you more 
from Star Trek and MacGyver and the Misfits of Science and Hill Street, or from Galaxy of Terror and Forbidden Dance and Warlords and whatnot? Well, I don't know. Everybody, I think, over the age of 50 gets all the TV stuff. Younger than that, they kind of focus on the films. I remember seeing you on the A-Team, and I just thought, this guy, you know, I, I, I was, when that aired, I was eight. And I was like, this guy is awesome. And then I'd see you pop up on Fall Guy, and then you'd be on Hill Street, and then on Misfits of Science, and it's like, this guy is just awesome. I mean, you outclassed the A-team on their own show. Well, well thank you for that, but I, I don't know. That's, that's a pretty big jump there. Yeah, that, that show was, was great because uh, George Papard, who certainly had a great career goal for himself, you know, at the completion of every scene, when the when the director would say, "Okay, print that," he would gather the actors together for the next scene, and we would go over it, go over it, go over it. And his theory was that if anything gets screwed up, it's not going to because be because of us. And so we were ready to rock the whole time. You mentioned earlier about how the script is what you look for. I I can't remember if it was just an interview you gave or it was on the Galaxy of Terror DVD, but you mentioned that you didn't like the dialogue. That's why Qwad ends up being essentially a silent character in the movie. Was that an issue of you liked the character but not the dialogue or something that changed later? Because I adore Galaxy of Terror. I love that movie. And you have a, such a glorious death being killed by your own severed arm. That was a situation where Roger wanted me to, to do that. Roger Corman wanted me to do that film. And I said, fine, send me the script, you know. And so he did, along with the deal. I read it, and I liked the character. But I, I called him, and I said, okay, I'll do this on one condition. And he said, you're not getting any more money. I said, I know that, okay. I mean, we have this great relationship where he would send me a script and a contract. Either I signed the contract and worked or didn't sign the contract and didn't work. No hard feelings either way. Okay. So he said, You're not getting any more money. I said, No. He said, So what's the condition? I said, Did I do it mute? Why? I said, Have you read that shit? And he goes, Oh, yeah, okay, fine, you can do it mute. So that was how that worked. You did have one line, though, the live and die by the crystals. The director forced me to say that line. And since I'm old school, there are certain rules that apply when working with directors. Number one, the director is always right. Number two, if the director is ever ever wrong, refer to rule number one. That's what I did. I gave the director the respect that directorship deserves. Said that stupid line. I'd love to have that cut out of the film. Well, that said... Even though Galaxy of Terror was kind of obscure for quite a while, it's got a huge cult following nowadays. Do you do you kind of look back at it a little more fondly, like maybe you wish you had done the dialogue, or you're glad you stood your ground? No, I'm glad I stood my ground. Still not that enthusiastic about having to say that one line. Uh, and I think, you know, the reason why the thing caught on later because there were all of those films, you know, all of Roger's films had like limited release, uh, theatrical releases. 
people just didn't catch up to it. And then all of a sudden when it started appearing on, you know, the DVD started appearing, people caught on to it. And friends would tell friends and blah, blah, blah. And, and then the thing just really took off. And, and a lot of people say it's you know, one of their favorite sci-fi films. So, you know, that's that's just the way things work out. I think the longest run we had on a film was uh, The Big Dollhouse that we did with um, Roger Corman. It was Pam Greer's first film. And that thing reportedly, because I wasn't there, but I this is what I heard through the grapevine and reading and whatnot, that film played at the same theater in Tokyo for six months straight. And they just kept wearing out prints, and Roger just kept selling them more prints. So <laughs> it was great. Well, with you doing low budget TV and you know low budget movies, high budget movies, high budget TV, do you ever have an uh, issue going between the, the the different worlds of that? Like you know, all of a sudden you're you're doing Buck Rogers, and then maybe next week you're doing Galaxy of Terror and the Aftermath. Is there a difference going between the two worlds of low budget versus relative high budget? Well, okay. There is a difference just in the fact that TV is different than film because TV, you've got to hack it out every day. You have to have, you know, 19 to 21 setups every day. Basically, when it comes right down to it, TV is something that you do to keep the, the audience interested until the next commercial shows up. And we go from commercial to commercial. You get some good television, okay? But it really doesn't give you a chance to develop a character, particularly when you're like a guest. And that guest, then that character will never show up again on the show. So, you know, there, there's, there's not a lot of creativity flowing through there, particularly, you know, for, for a guest. Now, as the regulars, uh, as far as the regulars are concerned, yeah, they can, you know, they can take time to to flesh out that character episode to episode and make it something really interesting. It's just a, a rush up kind of deal with with television as opposed to high budget film where you've got a chance to develop something. You know, the directors are willing to spend more time with you in a film. Good example of that was when I did uh, Che, which was the story of Che Guevara. My character was the leader of the Bolivian Communist Party, and when Che showed up in Bolivia and started to you know make a big push to to make Bolivia completely a communist country, I felt a brotherhood there. My character felt a, a, a brotherhood with Che. And as the film developed, Jay started getting really maniacal. And at the end of the film, I basically separate myself. And the director, who was Richard Fleischer, who just a year before had won an Academy Award for um, uh, Dr. Doolittle, the Rex Harrison, Dr. Doolittle. And um, so he set up this scene, and I was up on a rock, and Omar was uh, in a hammock. Uh, kind of trying to get control of his asthma. It just kind of felt weird to be separated, you know, because we were like brothers. Uh, at least I felt that way. My character felt that way. So after he got through setting up the scene, Omar looked at me and he said, 
said, what's wrong? I said, uh, nothing, nothing's wrong. He goes, come on, tell me. You, you know, you, you look like you're not happy about something. I said, oh, you know, I just feel like there, there's too much space between us here and it should be a little more intimate. We start that way and then the anger can come and we explode into, you know, whatever happens next. And he thought about it a second and he called Richard over. And he said, Richard, I have an idea. What what if we were to stage this where Sid was like really close to where I am? And he did that because it's not that he knew that, that Richard Fleischer wasn't gonna pay any attention to me, but if it came from, from Omar then, you know, the the attention would be given. And that was I think that was a very giving moment for Omar to do that for the show itself. And so that's how that played out. Uh, but if it was television, I've had directors on television say, Sid, I, I understand where you're going, and I like it, but I don't have time to cover it, so just say the words. But when you have that told to you, just say the words, does it, does it kind of diminish what you're feeling being there? Like maybe you're all excited on the show, and then you realize you're just you know, an actor instead of the character, if that makes sense? Initially, it did kind of hit me, you know, a little hard, and then I realized what was going on, and, and it, it, the work just had to get done, and so I would just say the words. Well, as we were talking about with you, like, you know, dancing between the worlds of high-budget, low-budget TV and movies, what about behind the scenes when it comes to, like, the amenities and whatnot? Because there are certain actors who, like, like Eric Roberts, he'll do... Batman one week, and then he'll be doing a no-budget horror movie the next week. And I've worked with Eric Roberts, and he said it's so different being on like a Warner Brothers movie than on this little movie shooting in the woods of Wisconsin. Do you ever find that being a little jarring? The like maybe the amenities or how each project is shot when you go from high budget to low budget? You know, I kind of know what to expect based on what the budget of the film is. And I know not to expect too much. And the thing that taught me that was working in the Philippines. I mean, I've been, I've done like four or five films in the Philippines before somebody actually came up with the idea of having a chemical toilet, okay? <laughs> and we were dressing behind bushes and, uh, just because there were no amenities. On the other hand, there's a situation where there's too much. I did a series with John Viner called McNamara's Band, and when we were shooting the pilot, there were five regulars on the show. And when we showed up on location, we were doing the pilot, there were five Winnebago's. Then there was, you know, honey wagons for the, for the which are small little dressing rooms for the supporting cast. And he was what's all of this? And he said, well, those are your, your Winnebago's. There's one for each one of you. And he said, well, what are those little things? And he said, well, that's where everybody just kind of gets dressed. And he said, oh, well, I'll tell you what. Which one is the best Winnebago? And, he, and I said, well, that one right there is yours. He said, okay, keep that one. Get rid of the other four. And we'll all get dressed in the little tiny rooms. The Winnebago will be the place where we just hang out. And that was something that was just like unheard of because, you know, you went from Charlie's Angels where everybody had their own Winnebago. 
believe one of the women had their own hairdressers and their own makeup people and their own this, that, and the other thing, okay? Because nobody wanted to be the first one called for makeup. You know, why why show up at 6.30 when somebody else is, is showing up at 8 to have the same thing done? So they all had their individual makeup people and their own individual wardrobe people and their own individual Winnebago's and blah, blah, blah. So we just kind of turned that around, and everybody on the show, all five of us, had our assignments, okay? One guy would bring in the uh, the pastries, and somebody else would bring in the sodas and whatnot, and somebody else food, whatever. And um, and that was our, our party wagon. We'd all get dressed, and, and we'd go in there and play music and laugh and joke and and they parked it like a quarter of a mile away from the set because we were just crazy and then they would send a car for us to come and do the scenes. But, you know, that was like a complete turnaround from, from everything else that had been done. So, um, you know, things things change depending on the personalities. Well, speaking of the personalities, you and some of the other people that really did a lot of television and then movies you guys all have this kind of genial, very nice, very down-to-earth quality to you. People like you and Michael Ironside and John Saxon and people like that. Did you ever run into any egos? I mean, any of the problems with you know the main cast members or the star of the movie or even an arrogant director? Any? I mean, anything where you personally ran into an ego problem of somebody else? You know, a movie star or something? Not really. I've been very lucky in that aspect I haven't had to deal with, you know, super ego problems. There was there was one case where uh we were doing uh McNamara's band and the guy who was like a I think he was a first assistant director or something was one of those screamers that just like is hollering at everybody to get him going. John Minor didn't like that at all. I was feeling a little crazy about it myself and since John was also a producer on the show the next day that guy wasn't there anymore we had a very genial you know assistant director and uh, kind of understood that you don't holler at people to get jobs done you just stats people and do it and they'll do it and but that was like the only time I really had any kind of big ego thing and it wasn't even from a cast member. It was from somebody in the crew. You have a very unique relationship with your fans. You seem to be really down-to-earth with your fans at signings and conventions and whatnot. What do you think about the Sid Haig fan base? Whether it's the older people like me who grew up on Jason of Star Command or like Rob Zombie, or the new people who know you from the Rob Zombie movies. What's your relationship like with the fans? My relationship with the fans, I think, is good, and it's healthy, and it comes from a good place. See, I understand that those are the people who put food on my table, and I am not going to dis- disrespect them by not responding to them in, in, in whatever way. These are people who I demand that I give them the respect that they deserve, because they buy the tickets, they buy the DVDs, they buy the tickets and the, 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 the T-shirts and the sweatshirts and all of the crazy stuff that we sell, okay? The action figures and everything else. 
And so why would I snub somebody that does extend themselves that much to me and for me? It's, it's, it's just common decency and, and, and being human, you know? You treat somebody well that, that, that appreciates what it is that you do and, and, and shows it by giving up their money. You know, that's, that's crazy. I, I, I made a vow that I, you know, I would never raise my prices and, and I'm sticking to that. Speaking of the fan base, what do you like to be remembered for more? Doing the kids stuff like Jason the Star Command or Electra Woman and Diana Girl or Wonderbug? Doing the more serious drama stuff like Mary Hartman? Or doing the sci-fi stuff where you're killing people and shooting laser guns? What, what do you want to be remembered for the most out of your very vast career? I'm just thrilled to death that people remember. Whatever I've done that they can connect with, that's, I'm good with that. So you don't have a preference whether somebody maybe loved you, you know, on Wonderbug or Electra Woman and Dyna Girl, or loved you killing somebody in the Filipino jungle for Roger Corman? Doesn't make any difference. As long as I did something to please them and something that they remembered, I did my job. Well, speaking of your job, what did you oh, what what do you personally as Sid Haig, what's more fun to act? As like, you know, in a cop show where maybe you're a thug, maybe you're a police officer, or in a sci fi show. What's more fun to act on as a, like a, a set? Would you rather be on the back lots at Universal? or a completely made-up world by James Cameron? Well, here again, we come to what the project is. I have fun with stuff, with things that, that stretch the imagination, you know, and, and sci-fi certainly does that. Uh, horror does that. Cop shows are cop shows, and there's good ones and there's bad ones. Uh, but they pretty much deal with one thing. Crying. Boom. Done. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy working with things that are a little bit out there. I've enjoyed doing comedies. I had a great time doing, uh, Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, uh, with Carol Burnett and Alan Arkins. It's doing the unpredictable because we know it's, we know what's going to happen at a cop show. Somebody's going to find somebody dead and then for the next 59 minutes we find out who it is. And we throw them in jail, and that's the end. With sci-fi or horror or comedy or whatever, you don't have that, at least if it's a good script, you, you don't have that that uh, footprint that's, you know, there. Well, speaking of that footprint, like I, I just mentioned James Cameron, who you worked with on Galaxy of Terror, and you also worked with George Lucas when he was just starting, and you worked with quite a few what are now some huge filmmakers when they were first starting out. Do they remember you? Do they, you know, call you up oh, maybe to audition for the new movies and stuff? Or Evidently they don't because I've never been called by either. I had to ask the question, though, because you worked with Lucas and, and Cameron, so how different is it? Because a lot of your TV work, even even some of the more comical stuff, is is more straight-laced. Straight but then you also did stuff like Just the Ten of Us and Sledgehammer. Do you like doing the straight-up comedy stuff as well, where you're not trying to pull comedy out of a serious scene where it's meant to be funny? 
I, I enjoy that. I do. I do enjoy doing comedy. And, and the, the funny thing about Justin Tenem is, you know, Bill Kirkenbauer started on Growing Pains as the coach of the high school game, whatever. Justin Tenemus was a spinoff from Growing Pains. They brought me in to do Janitor Bob on the Justin Tenemus. That worked out really well. I had a great time. We, we just had a great relationship. That show got canceled. They took me from Justin Tenemus and stuck me in Growing Pains as Janitor Bob. So that was a little, you know, that was a little crazy. See, I'm, you know, people give me compliments, and I and I appreciate them. Believe me, I appreciate the compliments that I'm, you know, I'm doing good work. But I have fun with what I'm doing, and it's almost a proven fact that when you have fun with what it is that you're doing, you're probably going to be good at it because you're putting yourself into it, and getting something out of it, you're having fun with it. Work is the highest extension of play because with work, there's a product at the end. With play, there's just, you know, there's good feelings. You know, that's that's where my head is. That's If I'm having fun doing something, it's usually going to turn out pretty well. Have you ever had issues with when you see the episode as it airs or when you see the final cut of the movie? Have you ever been unhappy with what the producers did to it? Oh, probably. I can't think of anything right off the bat. The one thing that surprised me was very early on in my career. As a matter of fact, it was my first television show, which was The Untouchables. I was playing this character who was a hitman. Duh. And um, I was torturing and killing these people because the, 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 the mob wanted to get all of the rights to sell milk at the World's Fair in Chicago. So I had to get these guys that had the milk contracts and get rid of them. And at the end, they had somebody who was going to turn state's witness on, on the mob, and they were leading him into the uh, police station. And I appeared on the roof of the building across the street and shot him. And then they turn around and shoot me, and I fall off the roof and boom, I'm done. Well, this was my first television show, so I was really you know, hyped to, to, to watch it when it came on. And I was there at my girlfriend's house that we were watching the show, and I shot the guy, and then nothing happened. They didn't turn. They didn't shoot me. I didn't die. I'm going, what's up? So I called my agent the next day, and I said, you know, what's going on? I, 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 they cut out that scene. And she said, well, I don't know, but I'll, I'll check. So she got back to me about an hour later, and she said, well, the reason they didn't do that is that they want you to be a recurring character on the show. Oh, okay, great. My first television show, and I get an offer to become a, a recurring character. Then there was a big to-do about presenting Italians in, the, in a bad light and one thing or another, and there was pickets going around there. I think it was NBC. So they just they canceled the show. That's how the show got canceled. It wasn't because of bad ratings. It was because it was offensive to, to some people. That was one of those cases where, you know, something was cut out and I I wound up 
winning because of it. Well, what about something like where you are essentially a separate part? I'm thinking of like House of the Dead too. Your character basically you've got your scenes and then the rest of the movie happens. When you see the final movie, do you kind of go, what the hell was that? Probably exactly what I said. <laughs> because I, I, I'm trying to dance around the fact that I thought you were the only good thing about House of the Dead, too. Well, thank you. Well, when you look at that, you know, I hit the girl. She doesn't die. I get out the tire iron, and I, I, I hit her in the head. Boom, she's dead. Take her back to the lab. Put her down on the on the operating table, and then systematically cut every piece of clothing off of her body so that she's absolutely naked, 100%. And then I give her a shot in the arm. What? <laughs> that's, that's just the craziest thing I've ever, you know, come across. I said, why? Why am I doing? Why can't I just like roll up her sleeve and give her a shot? No, no, no. Because it's an exploitation movie, you got to exploit something, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> it was well, crazy, though. Now, I've, I've read the story that you gave up acting in the early 90s, and then you only came back when Tarantino wanted you to play the judge in Jackie Brown. What was it that made you want to give up for the five years between Boris and Natasha and Jackie Brown? Well, it wasn't really a case of giving up. It was a case of... You know what? I'm just going to stand back for a little bit and wait for somebody to figure out that I can do something more than just point a gun at somebody's face. So when Quentin called, uh, I mean, he called my house. I don't know how he got my phone number, but I guess when you're Quentin Tarantino, you're, you know, like the CIA. Gary said, hey, okay, fine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he called and he said, I understand it. You don't want to do any more stupid heavies. I've written a part for you as the judge, Jackie Brown. I won't take no for an answer if you're going to do this. Okay, boss. There we were. And he didn't tell Pam Greer that he had cast me in that role. So when she showed up on the set and she saw me in the robe, she cracked up laughing. She hit the floor. Being in a Tarantino movie, which is obviously a big boost, kind of got everything rolling again? No. Nothing happened. <laughs> Until I, I got the script for... Uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. And that was something, you know, because in that, in that time period when I was waiting for somebody to wake up, I was still busy. I was still active. I was working for a company that was doing basically commercials and um, educational videos and, and documentaries and stuff like that. Uh, I was, I, I had probably about a third of the commercials that were on uh, Comcast were mine. Wrote the copy and produced it and directed it and did the editing, stuck in the music, the whole ball of wax for for all of that time until uh, you know, I got the call to go to this building and sign a letter of non-disclosure and take the script home and read it and if you like it, the part is yours. And that was House of a Thousand Corpses. And obviously that thrust you back into the limelight. Now, I mean, even in the 90s, when things started to dry up, it's not the right word, when things, when you kind of put your foot down waiting for something to happen, a lot of these TV shows you'd only see in reruns, right? I'm assuming you probably recorded them yourself, so you had a copy. Is it any different now when you can go to Best Buy and you can see almost an entire wall of you, that you can go, 
I was in an episode of that. I did one of those. I did two of those. I did one of those. It, have things changed when it comes to looking back at your career? I just, I look back at my career and just kind of get a good feeling that I was able to do all of that work. You know, uh, this is a business that you have to be, you have to be tough to be in this business and to hang on. When I went to school, I went to the Pasadena Playhouse and with a very impressive alumni, dean of the college, gave a little orientation speech and he said, there's three things that you need to become an actor. First of all, is wealthy parents. Well, that lets me out. He said, because it's expensive. You have to buy the pictures, you have to have the right clothes, you have to have a car, you have to drive here and there and see this, that, and the other thing, phone people. And so, it did, you know, it just takes a lot of money to get things going. And I could understand that. He said, and the second thing is you have to be tenacious. And I said, aha, that I am. He said, uh, and the third thing is if you happen to have a little talent, it'll help. And uh, so I took the two out of the three and made it work. I, I don't let go. I, I never had a backup plan. And this is something that I, you know, I've told kids that have asked me about, you know, how do you do this and then blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you're passionate about something, I don't care what it is, whether it's acting or, or cooking or anything else, okay? You want to be a chef. If you're passionate about something and you follow that path and you as Winston Churchill said to graduating class of Oxford University, you never quit. Never, never, never quit. And you never have a backup plan because when things get tough, you will back up and then your dream dies. That's the way I worked it. You know, I mean, when I was living at school and living in the men's dormitory, we all had little cubicles in the kitchen that we kept our stuff in, you know, dry goods and stuff. Nobody kept anything in the refrigerator because it would get stolen. So I went in there one night, and it was all I had was a box of rice. And I said, well, okay, it's rice. And I picked it up, and it was one of those empty milk carton routines. It was like there was hardly anything in it. And there was basically a fat tablespoon of rice left in the box. I don't know why I kept it. But I I poured it out into my hand, put it in my mouth, drank a glass of warm water, and waited for it to swell. But I wasn't going to quit. I would never quit. If I have any success at all, it's because of that philosophy. And I think that shines through. Because, I mean, like I pointed out earlier, you just look at your body of work and you were working pretty consistently. You can't just do that as a goof. That has to be something you work at. So clearly you worked at this, which brings me to, I guess, my next question. How did you work at this? Did you get roles on Hill Street and all that? Were they mainly offered to you or did you go to your agent and say, Hill Street Blues is a fantastic show. I want to be on Hill Street. Well, there's, that always happens. You know, actors will call their agents and say, I want to be on this show, I want to be on that show. How come I'm not doing this show or that show or the other show? You know, that, that's, that's something that's constant because actors are paranoid. Uh, and they, they want to do stuff that sometimes, uh, is just not 
had that conversation with uh, uh, one of my agents, and he said, you know what, come to the office. And and so I went to the office, and he handed me the, the breakdowns for all these shows. And he said, find me a show in there that, that you would fit in. And I looked through this whole stack of television shows uh, with, with roles, and there just wasn't really anything for me to play. And so that's when I just calmed down and waited for things to happen. And, and sometimes that's that's just what you have to do. You know, it's like going fishing. You can't force the fish to take the bait. Okay, you got to sit there and wait for a hungry fish to come along. There you go. But by the same token, because I was working so much, there came a point in time where uh, I had a guest starring role on a different television series every night of the week, Sunday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every night, and so on one show or another. And so I said, "This I have to put the money out to take out an ad for this." So I took out an ad in uh, uh, Variety and uh, Hollywood Reporter, and my agent got a call from the people that were doing Batman, and. The guy said, this guy is doing a guest starring role on every show on television except mine. Get him in here now. And uh, so I, I went down to the office and he handed me the script. You know, go in that room over there, read the script, and whatever you want, except for the part of uh, King Tut, uh, whatever you want, it's yours. And so that's what I did. You know, those those times are rare. But I took advantage of the situation. The fact that I was doing all those guest appearances in that one week to, ge- to generate more work. And I've worked myself out of work. And I've restarted my career like five, six times. The attitude is, oh my God, said, hey, we've seen enough. Said, hey, okay, well, give me somebody else. And then it comes back to, you know, I think Sid Hague should do this job. And then my career starts all over again. I mean, the big action starts all over again. And then they see too much of me, and then it goes away, and then it comes back, and then it goes away, and then it comes back. I, I can, I've got many ways to put food on my table. I'll, I'll do, and then the thing, here's, here's, see, here's the point why, why I do so many conventions, is a hedge against having to just do stupid stuff for for a little money to, you know, pay the bills. That can be more detrimental to your career than, than helpful. And the and the and the money isn't that I mean, I actually had somebody offer me a hundred dollars to come up to their hotel room at a convention and do a scene for their movie. You were talking about how being on, you know, all these T V shows with each more T V shows, were there any that you wanted that you couldn't get? Like it, like you really wanted to be on Miami Vice or something like that, and it just never happened. Do you have any regrets of you really wish you had been on a certain show? Hmm. I don't. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I remember saying, "Oh God, I got to be on this show," and then and not getting it. Because I, mean, I did some of the some of the greatest shows. I mean, I did Nine Mission Impossible's. Okay, and that was like the number one rated show in the air, Mannix and, and you know, all the rest of that stuff. Um, but I 
Good Cooties, The Man from Uncle, all of those were good shows, you know. So I really, I, I really can't remember saying, God, I want to see that show, and it's not getting it. I mean, there's shows that I've wanted to do that I haven't, you know, I, I didn't have this burning desire to to get it done. If you're going to hire Sid Haig, you need him to kill a regular or something. Yeah, I've, I've beaten up more good guys than being shaking stick. It's funny. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll go on a show and just as a joke, one of these will say, oh, no, not this guy again, you know. Wagner, Wagner, Wagner. He said, oh, we can't work together anymore. After I did a um, uh, heart-to-heart, I said, why? He said, because the first time we worked together, you threw a knife at me. And the second time you worked, we worked together, you threw a bale of hay at me. And on um, heart-to-heart, there was this confrontation, and I picked up a love seat and threw it at him. He said, and so, like, what's next? A, a Volkswagen bug or something? So it was, I mean, it was all a joke, and we had a good time with it, but, yeah. With, with all of the, the retro television, and you have all these retro TV channels now, do you ever flip channels and find that just like when they were on the air and you were on something every single night, it's the same thing now that, you know, you're on, you know, nine different shows in one week on the retro, on the retro station? Does that give you a, a little twinge of nostalgia? Well, yeah, it does, and it, and uh, I don't. I'm not a remote guy. Okay, uh, flip through the channels. People come up, and, you know, uh, in a coffee shop or whatever, and say, "I saw you on, you know, my uh, uh, whatever show, you know, um, the Lucy show uh, last night." And I, well, cool. Did you like it? No, oh, God, it was so funny, and da da da, this that, and the other thing. So you know, I. I I get a good feeling from that, and the fact that those things lasted and they're still playing, and, they're, and that you know gives you kind of a good feeling that something that you did uh, wound up being something that, that, that just lasted through the years. You know, I mean, I've been doing this for 54 years. Well, since you have been doing this for 54 years, do you get sick of people like me constantly asking you about all these things that you've probably told these stories a hundred times? Or do you enjoy do you enjoy relating these stories to the people who grew up watching your stuff? I I enjoy it, okay, and and I and I think it serves a purpose, okay, not for me, but for the people that I well, you know like yourself who uh, are interviewing me. If something that I say strikes a spark in you, you make you push yourself a little harder or stick with whatever it is that you're doing. Uh gives you a little lift here and there. You see, that's, that's, uh, that's very important to me because nobody, very few people understand this, but there are two responsibilities for an actor. Number one is to educate, and number two is to entertain. Well, everybody forgot the education part, okay? Now it's just make me laugh, make me cry, make me do this, that, or the other thing, okay? You know, the education part is, is important, important to me. Might not be to anybody else, but it's important to me. So through these interviews, and I've done a gazillion of them, if somebody picked up on something that I said and, and they felt that they could advance themselves by, by doing that, then you see, I've done my job. 
I did my job as an actor, and it was my entertaining, and I did my job as an actor to educate. Certainly look for um, Lone Tomahawk, which is uh, even post right now. Uh, it's a new Kurt Russell film. And I uh, just finished it this summer with, uh, uh, with a lot with David Arquette. That was, that was so grueling. I mean, we were dressed in winter clothes. That was like 105 out or something. Dude, that's another thing that people don't understand. In the early days of television, the shows were a reflection of the time of year. That was a reflection of the season. And since the, tele- the new television season started in the fall, those shows reflected the fall season. So you were working in, you know, parkas or heavy jackets or whatever, but you were shooting it in July. <laughs> okay, so uh, it was a little weird. That, that That's why if you if you look at some of the, the old beach movie films, there are very few close-ups on the beach because they were shot in January, okay, and the goosebumps were showing. So, so, and the reason they were shot in January is because nobody was at the beach and they could, you know, shoot wherever they wanted. But, uh, yeah, there's that aspect uh, people really don't realize. And now it, it doesn't really make any difference because there is really no season anymore. I mean, shows start up in, you know, January or they start up in March or, or whenever, you know, in the series. So uh, it's kind of freewheeling now, so they don't really pay that much attention to the to the season in terms of how they're scheduling their shows. And also, you know, besides Bone Tomahawk, I'm doing a very interesting project called uh, Abruptio. And uh, this is the first time this has ever been done, I've been told. They're using life-size marionettes. It's all of my work in voiceover, but the idea of using life-size marionettes is kind of, kind of interesting. That, that got my attention right away. But I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak to me because, like I said, I grew up watching your stuff. I know my audience is a little younger than I am, but they probably grew up watching your stuff, even if it's in retrospect from the Rob Zombie stuff. Because, like you said, a lot of people think you, that you started your career with House of a Thousand Corpses. So I just I, I want to thank you not only for your body of work, but for being as down to earth and awesome to people like me and to the fans as you are. Well, thank you. I had a good time. The time just kind of flew by here. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, it's an hour later. And 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 you know, see, I mean, when we're when we're working here like this and we're just talking and having a good time doing it, the time flies by. I mean, I, I did a, uh, a convention in Kansas City. Uh, I was on the early morning radio with Doug Badley. It was an hour and 15 minutes commercial free because uh, we were just all having a good time. And I, I hope you had a good time because I know I did. Like I said, I had these weird questions about just very specific things about your career, like, oh, you were on an episode of that. Tell me a little bit about that. Or, oh, because, like I said, I, I wasn't kissing ass when I said, I thought you upstaged the A-team on their own show. Well, that was kind of, that was, that was, it was kind of fun. Uh, and the, and the thing, you know, they, 
they gave me that nickname on the show. They, they started calling me Lizard Breath. And the morning after the show aired, I went into a coffee shop that I used to frequent. And this guy looked at the table, just looked up, and he went, Lizard Breath. And just to play with him, I walked up to him, and I said, you might notice that there's no bars between you and me right now. And he started apologizing all over the place, and I started laughing. I said, I'm just playing with you, man. People like you and Michael Ironside and John Saxon, the people who almost always play a heavy, tend to be the nicest people in real life. I think it's just a, a thing of you're, 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 you want to show people who you are as opposed to who they think you are. I mean, people look at me and go, oh, God, I better not you know, piss that guy off because he'll kill me. Well, I'm not going to kill anybody, okay? Relax. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's a job. I'm just doing my job. And if I scared you, then I did my job. I, I think that is just some fascinating stories. Like how the fact that he did so much TV in the 60s, he was on a different TV show every single night of the week. Do you think you could do that nowadays? No, especially with schedules and stuff, because uh, the the scheduling conflicts would just be astronomical. There, I mean, God, I, there would probably be some contract nonsense in there too, where you know, well, I'm in this show, I'm in this show. Well, you can't be in both shows, you know. So yeah, that's just it would not happen. Yeah, you don't see it um, as much nowadays with with actors because yeah, there is like a, a conflict of interest. If you sign a contract, you have to be in uh this property or, or that property so i think it, it was um it was a bit more of the wild west back then where uh working actors really just were working actors you'd see them everywhere that's there were a lot more of uh of the that guy back then because you would you'd see him on tv and like almost every other show you'd see him popping up in movies and i think that that's awesome to just the the work ethic of of sid Haig is is just phenomenal but do you think it's kind of unfair, like going off what he said about how many people he meets at cons that have no idea he did anything prior to House of a Thousand Corpses? <laughs> do you think that that's fair, that he has 40 years of TV and movies and people think he's a relatively recent find? Is that fair to his body of work? It's not fair. I guess it's not fair, but at the same time, I wouldn't really see it as an insult because the work that he, like a lot of the work he did, like I brought up, Galaxy of Terror, you, you brought up the, the shows he was on. A lot of them were in circulation, you know, in the, the 70s or the 80s. And, and, and a lot of them are, are things that a lot of people haven't seen. I I myself knew who he was prior to seeing him as, as Captain Spaulding. And, and people like us kind of kind of know him, people that are more into uh, those type, types of movies and things that, that aren't quite uh, in, in the mainstream. And, and the people who found out about him through... House of a Thousand Corpses through Devil's Rejects. I mean, that's just kind of the first thing they they saw him in, and it's it's unfortunate in a way. But I don't I don't think it really undermines or undercuts his his career. Uh, these are just people that have uh, that have discovered him at at that time, and either way, they obviously very much loved him as the character. I don't I don't think it's unfair because it, it's just uh, like Peter said, where it's somebody who's just discovering him now they can go back and start to watch the other stuff. I mean, they have the ability to do that now. I mean, back uh, then, like, let's say uh, you saw an actor and you really liked him and it was, you know, 1980 and you wanted to find out what else they had been in. 
Well, you had to have like a real good movie nerd friend who'd be able to tell you, well, they were in this movie and this movie. Now it's like, hey, I really like that actor. Let's go into the IMDb and look up his entire film catalog. So I think yeah. that uh, it's it's fine that, uh, you know, they can do that. And I mean, I'd rather them know him now than not know him at all. Okay, I can't disagree with you. I just think I just feel it's a little disingenuous. He did so many so much TV and movies prior to House of a Thousand Corpses, and he's only known for the last few years. That that I just find it a little disingenuous of the audience. But maybe I'm a little more critical in that because I am older and I did grow up watching Sid Haig throwing chairs at people and always playing a biker gang leader or things like that. You know, so so to me, when I saw him in Jackie Brown or House of a Thousand Corpses, it's like, oh, hey, Sid Haig, where, <laughs> where, where the, the newer people were going, wow, that dude's cool. But they didn't know him. I'm like, oh, I remember <laughs> when he was on the A-team and stuff like that. What do you what do you think Sid Haig's legacy should be? Do you think his legacy should be this guy who plays the, this awesome heavy in a lot of things? Or do you think his legacy should be one of the nicest guys behind the scenes? that if you go up to a con, he's going to treat you amazingly. I can't just speak for myself here when I was speaking to him. I have heard nothing bad about him, the way he interacts with fans. Uh, I think that uh, his legacy should be of a general skull fracture from uh, Sledgehammer. Well, he does have that cool bald head and the big beard. He certainly does. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I got to say, why not both? I mean... I think he should be both looked at as a guy who's, who's great to work with, both on on the set, you know, in set conventions, that he's this great guy, and at the same time, a very very hardworking individual, very diverse. Could you know, be, has done TV work, has done you know exploitation films, and made made a bit of a comeback with the Rob Zombie stuff, and just just a guy that's been working really hard as a as a master of his craft and is a great dude. Well, you know who else is a great dude. Peter G. Where can people find <laughs> that great dude? Uh, you, you can find the the great dude that is uh, Peter G. on uh, Twitter at Cinematica, Facebook, Cinemasochist, YouTube, uh, Cinemasochist, and on 1201beyond.com where you can find another great dude named Josh Hadley. Cecil, where can people find you being a great dude? You can find me being a great dude at escapistmagazine.com, goodbadflicks.com, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, you can find me at the aforementioned 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. I want to thank Sid Haig for sitting down and talking to me. And there's a whole bunch more of stuff I cut because after the actual interview was over, we just sat and shot the shit for another half hour, which was just amazing. But nice. I, want, I, I want to thank Sid Haig. You need to go back and check out his TV stuff. You'll never believe that the same Captain Spaulding was the villain on a kid's show, on a kid's show Star Wars knockoff in the 70s. I'm not kidding.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.